Praise the Lord. Eighth chapter of the, the book of Mark. We're going to read from verses 1 through 10. Let's stand and honor God's word together one more time and read this. If you'd like to join me, it's fine. During those days, another large crowd gathered. Since they had nothing to eat, Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion on these people. They have already been with me three days and have nothing to eat. If I send them home hungry, they'll collapse on the way because some of them have come a long distance. His disciples answered, But where in this remote place can anyone find enough bread to feed them? How many loaves do you have? Jesus asked. Seven, they replied. He told the crowd to sit down on the ground. When he had taken the seven loaves and given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to distribute to the people, and they did so. They had a few small fish as well. He gave thanks for them also and told his disciples to distribute them. The people ate and were satisfied. Afterward, the disciples picked up seven basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. About 4,000 were present. After he had sent them away, he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the region of Dalmanthua. Father, I praise you and thank you for your word, your living word. I thank you, Father, for the truth that resides in it and the truth that it's breathed into it by your Holy Spirit, the truth that also breathes out to us as we read it, as we study it. I pray, Father, that you will help us today to be awakened to the truth of who we are and why we are here at all today, and that we could surely be ones who sat in this crowd, for we too were people without hope. We were people without covenant. We were people without the knowledge of God. But by your great love, while we were dead in our trespasses and sins, you made us alive in Christ Jesus, for by grace are we saved. And we bless you today in Jesus' name. Amen. Mark begins this text with the phrase, during those days, another crowd gathered. Now, if you recall back in the sixth chapter, we see Jesus had been in Capernaum. He was being crowded by people from everywhere. His disciples had just been sent out by him. The disciples are coming back, and with the disciples, many people followed them back to Capernaum. Capernaum was Jewish territory, Jewish region. And as a result, we see that feeding of the 5,000 as they left Capernaum and went to find rest when his disciples came back, and the crowds were walking along the shore, and every time they'd see their boat, they would move on with them until finally they found this isolated place. 
And as soon as they walked into the isolated place, it only had about uh, 15,000 people in this isolated place waiting for it. And so the idea of solitude that we see Jesus saying, it's time for you to rest, I'm going to take you to a quiet place. Well, while his disciples were in the quiet place, Jesus was speaking to and then, of course, providing lunch for those 5,000. It said 5,000 men, not to mention the women and the children. So however you calculate the women and children, how many of them were married, how many of them had, had um, children, you, know, you read commentaries, there's all kinds of calculations of how many people could have been there. It could have been up to about 15,000. If you just have one man, woman, for every woman there's a man, a man for the woman, and for every woman there's a child or something like that. Um, it could have been less, it could have been more, but 5,000 or more is quite a few people, especially to feed with bread, limited bread and limited fish. And so when he says here, during those days, another crowd gathered. And he's not talking about those days back in Capernaum. He's, of course, talking about where we're, we're leading up to. Um, do you still have that map available, um, Andres? Is Andres still here? Do you remember the map you looked at last time? You saw Caesarea. You saw Tyre and Sidon and, and um, Caesarea Philippi. And then you see down the Decapolis below that, all on that. See how you do this. If the lake is like this, Sea of Galilee is like this, Capernaum's on this side, on this side is Bethsaida, and way up here is Tyre, and then Sidon even further, and Caesarea is that whole land if you kind of sweep down to your right, and the Decapolis are the ten cities, the ten Gentile cities that are on the other side of the Sea of Galilee. Can you picture that? Wow, that's pretty miraculous just doing that. Okay, what's my next step here? I've, got, I've lost my power machine here. <laughs> I'm not holding this little mic all day. Sorry, everybody. This, of course, will be removed from the final tape, I think, if I can ever get it back together. Oh, my. Have I got a testimony? <laughs> oh, my goodness. How do you do this? Oh, there you go. You're patient. Thank you. So where were we? We are on our map, right, that you can't see? And um, you said you saw the things that I said, and so as a result we see that now he is on the, let's see, north, south, east, west. He's on the western side of the Sea of Galilee, and he's up, well, he's actually in the, in the east, but he's north, Tyre, Sidon, and now he's coming back. And so he's taken a little swing down to the Decapolis, which if I like you, brother. This was, this was an interesting little thing here, too. Um, you see this, uh, this, this route, if you went straight from Tyre over and down, it would have been about uh, 50 miles. But instead, he took the short route. He went up to Sidon, then he went over this kind of fishhook-looking thing down to Bethsaida, and so it was 150 miles on foot. And it was very clear, it became very clear that Jesus was not just trying to get from one place to the other. He was working his way through the Gentile regions of Israel. They're above Israel, in Syria. And the first thing we saw was a Syrophoenician woman. Remember her? And she was one of the first persons that came. She had a daughter who had some kind of a difficulty. Uh, I think it was demon possession. And so she 
requested that Jesus cast out the devil in her. And Jesus very courteously looked her right in the eye and said, why should we give the children's bread to dogs? Bringing up that historic division between the Jews and the Gentiles, and the division had produced the term dogs, Gentile dogs. Now it's very clear that Jesus is not really talking to the woman, a Seraphonician woman from the standpoint of, you know, despising her or something like that, because they're surrounded by Pharisees. You know, the Pharisees were the watchers, the ones that watched you, make sure that you kept the law. And so Jesus is being watched by them. We see that in the earlier narratives that came before this time frame, when Jesus is now going into Gentile territory. For whatever reason, he's going to the Gentiles. Remember, he told his disciples, don't go to the Gentiles, but go to the house of Israel, the lost sheep of Israel, go to the Israel. Paul took up that same banner when he said um, that he goes first to the Jew and then to the Gentile. In fact, going to the Gentile was not even his plan. He had no desire to go to the Gentiles. He was going to go to the Jewish people to reach the Jewish people. But everywhere he went, he saw more Gentiles being converted than he saw Jewish people responding. So where do they get the idea that you're going to go to the Jew first and then the Gentile? Well, of course, it came from Jesus for his disciples and Jesus' own plan. We, it's not clear that he went up there just to find, you know, 25 Jews up in Gentile territory. And so as he goes, he has the same idea in mind, the same plan in mind, but he's looking for the lost sheep of the house of Israel, his people, the people of God. And we went to some detail about that when we talked about the idea of who are the people of God. A couple of weeks ago, we talked about that. Who are the people of God? Well, God called a guy named Abraham, who was a Gentile. He was a pagan. And he called him and Ur of the Chaldees to take up his, up his stuff, bundle it up, and follow him to a land that he would show him. And we see that God made covenant with Abraham, and he called him his people. He would, they would be his people. He would be their God. And so this idea of being God's people is the characteristic of Israel. And of course, Israel is the name of his, Abraham's um, sons, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And we see Israel rise up within that, that, that um, generations, and they became the Israel of Israel that God had called. The people that came out, they were the Israelites, God's people. Jewish people wasn't really used until far later, many years later. But they were called Israelites people of Israel. In fact, in some of the manuscripts, Egyptian manuscripts, they find um, the Israeli people or some form of Israeli or something like that. They're, they're mentioned as being in the land of Egypt for a period of time. So we see this idea of being, and again, this, we shouldn't lose this in our minds. Who are God's people? Who are they? How do you get to be a God, God, God's people? He chooses you. He chose Abraham. He chose Isaac. He chose Jacob. And every generation, he recertifies this covenant that he has chosen you, and you are his chosen people. Isn't it interesting the book of Ephesians starts out with, you are chosen people. You're a chosen people, Peter says. A royal priesthood, a people belonging to God. Chosen people. 
It's not because of your generation. It's not because of your father, not because of your mother, not because of your great uncle or somebody in their past. It's because God chooses us in every generation. We continually become His people by His choice of us. And it's really indisputable in the Scripture. We change it with tradition, how you Jew, uh, uh, view things. Jewish people are people that all have a Jewish ancestry. But in reality, God calls even Jews into covenant with Him by His choosing, His choosing of them. That still happens today. You see people that are called Orthodox Jews, people are secular Jews. In Israel, 95% people in Israel are atheists. They don't try to, they don't, they, they're Jewish, but they think by genealogical relationship only. They're not Jews because they keep Judaism. Of course, there is no way to do that without a temple. That's a little side problem. But as a result, we see God, God's calling of His people. Now, that's kind of a parenthetical thought in the introduction here. But it says, During those days, another large crowd gathered. And the, the crowd that gathered in Capernaum, or the north of Capernaum, was a Jewish crowd, largely Jewish. Even by the way you do the counting. How do you count? You count by the men in the crowd. How do they count here? It's a plural in this, in, in this, in this, um, in this pericope, this part of the narrative, this narrative. It's, he's calling a crowd, and that word crowd is plural. It means men, women, children. So he says 4,000 people, or 4,000 people in the crowd, that's men, women, and children. When he says 5,000 men, that's, that's a very strong distinction between a Jewish crowd, a Jewish group of people, and a Gentile group of people. And so we see these, these, I'm saying that because some people contend that both of those, these are both the same story. It's just doubling of the story, that Mark just records the story twice, which is far from the truth because there are some unique similarities, but there are also some very unique differences, just some of the ones I've talked about so far. And if I can remember all of them, I'll, I'll try to share them as we go along here. Um, but during those days, large crowd uh, gathered, since they had nothing to eat, Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion on these people. They have already been with me three days and have nothing to eat. Well, he's kind of done it again to his disciples, hasn't he? When we saw in the earlier chapters the, those five different um, narratives that all pointed toward the discipleship. What is a disciple? And one of them was trusting in the Master. And Jesus, at that last little luncheon that they had, with 15, 10, 15,000 people there, He turned to His disciples after a fairly short period of time, and He said, these people need to be fed. They're probably hungry by now. Imagine. Rockville's kind of hungry right now. Let's all feed them. Back to, you just go feed them right now yourself. There's only 60,000 people here in Rockville. Let's just feed them right now. Well, disciples got tested severely by that, and here they are again. But, but man, what a result. Wasn't it crazy? Jesus says, well, how much do we have? How much do you have, he says. Well, we have five loaves and two fish. Well, bring them here. He raised them up to heaven, which is a Jewish tradition. Raised them up to heaven, and he then blessed them and then distributed them to the people. Here, he says, you feed them, 
And what do you think the disciples said? What do you think that they would say after 5,000 people were fed? Well, Lord, no problem. We have five loaves and a few little fishes. No problem. But it says, what do they say? <laughs> but where, kind of with a trembling voice, right? But where in this remote place can anyone get enough bread to feed them? I think it's a study in the hardness of the heart. Of course, it's, it's not our hearts. We're, we're not like this. This is the disciples long ago. It's the hardness of their hearts. These guys weren't spiritual enough to pick up on this and be ready for this on a second occasion. I mean, how many of us have great testimonies of things that happened in our past? Great testimonies, wonderful things. Anybody? Who could give a testimony? I'm going to ask you to, but who could give a testimony of something God has done for you? Come on, you bunch of liars that aren't lacing your hands. <laughs> I'm, I said I'm not going to ask you to give it, all right? We all have this, this incredible thing where we remember something, we identify with something, and how God moved in our hearts and our lives, remember? And then something, up, something else comes up, not quite the exact same thing, perhaps about a tenth as critical, as important, and we say, what am I going to do? I'm in deep trouble. Can't get through this one. That's, I guess that's just how I have dealt with it. No, we find ourselves with this, this reversion to the idea that it's a case-by-case -case thing instead of linking things together to show the glory of God and how, how is, instead of saying, how are you going to work this one out, God? We say, how are you going to work this one out, God? But God is leading us to trust Him and to rely upon Him, even with overwhelming odds. We should remember that. We probably just make that the point of the sermon. We should remember that. When something comes and confronts you, this isn't a point where you hope God is still around. And so you say, let's get everybody we know praying about this, as if God's gone, man, what, what are all those voices I keep hearing? Oh, it's people praying. What are they praying about? Well, they're praying about what? Blah, blah, blah. Well, I guess we better do something about that one. No, God knows the beginning and from the ending, the first and the last. He, he delights in providing for us, to bring us into trouble just so He can provide for us, so we can be assured of who He is again and again and again and again. All things work together for the good, for those who love God, the called according to His purpose. And as a result, we have an expectation that the reason I'm having a problem is because God has a solution already. He even says, before we even pray, He knows what we're praying for. He's already provided a means of escape. But here we see this glaring statement. Now, of course, if you and I had seen 5,000 people fed in the way that was, it would be a different story, right? This would, it would have to be rewritten. No. You know, you get 5,000 people fed, and then you have to, you know, get one person lunch, and you just panic. No. You see this 
laid at their feet. Talking about on-the-job training. He's not just giving them simple things to do. He says, you feed them. How many loaves do you have, Jesus asked. Seven, they replied. Again, seven. I already ate four, Lord, two days ago. I ate all my food, God. Jesus. And the other one, remember, it was that, that evening they were hungry. How many days have passed now? Three days in listening to Jesus teach and heal and drive out Satan and destroy his power. Gentile people have been sitting and, and, and just waiting for every word that comes from his mouth for three days. And you can say, well, of course, the Gentile people, they're much more, they're much more um, organized than Jewish people, right? They don't just expect a handout. They want to get a big lunch. And so they carry their, to follow Jesus, they got their pack of food and all their provisions, and so they're going to go. They were ready to go for at least five, for at least two days, they were going to go out there to, to have a picnic with Jesus. No. If they took some food, it was gone the first afternoon. I don't know about you, but, you know, we have a, this little habit of sitting down in front of a movie and, and proceeding to eat everything in our house that's edible. You know, <laughs> I don't know about you, but I'm thinking about the next day. I think about the next day, you know, I'll just shoot out to the store and get some more stuff. And, you know, their food is gone the first day. Then they keep listening the second day and then the third day. And now no one's clamoring saying, hey, man, I heard over the, through the grapevine you fed those people. Let's have some lunch or some dinner. I'm hungry. Was Jesus compassionate upon them? No, no, that causes us to really become very focused on something. What were they feeding on for three days? They were feeding on Jesus himself. They're feeding on his words, these words of hope, these words of cleansing, these words of rescue, these words of inclusion, these words of heaven, these words of his connection to God, these words of joy and gladness and peace and a kingdom that's coming and that he's an ushering in by his own presence and power. They're hearing these words and they're hanging on. Well, you say, well, how can you get all that? That's not in the Bible. Really? Why are they there for three days? They think this guy's going to give them something? Some handout, He's, he and his disciples, they got their donkeys of gold with them, going to Gentile territory, Jews. What do you think his disciples were feeding on? Over and over and over again, it was feeding on him. And people continue to feed on Jesus. You remember those times when you were hungry, you weren't thirsty, you were just being fed by God's Word. You were being fed and it touched your soul. It satisfied you beyond your senses. He told the crowd in verse 6, sit down on the ground. Now just one editorial comment here. In the previous feeding of the 5,000, he told them to sit on the grass. Grass grows during grass growing seasons, typically the warmer times of the year. This is, must be toward the fall, so it could have been, if, if this is truly chronological to that time frame, we're talking about several months later 
They're sitting on the ground. He doesn't say sit on the grass. They're sitting on the ground now. And as a result, we see this time frame moving. It's not the same story as what I keep trying to emphasize. When he had taken the seven loaves and given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to distribute to the people, and so they did. This, of course, is a very Gentile way of receiving food with thanks. Arguably a Christian Gentile way. It, this could perhaps even be the context of Mark himself rather than the context of Jesus on, this, on that place where, he, where they were sitting on the ground. This may be Mark's addition like Luke did sometimes and Matthew did sometimes to try to bring his audience into an understanding of how this was working out. And Mark knows that Jewish people when you say they held up something, that's a Jewish custom. But a Gentile to say they're just receiving it by thanks. You Gentiles did that already today once, didn't you? You received bread today, didn't you? Did we lift it up and did we, O God of heaven and earth, thou, you know, there's a little slogan or something like that that said, maker of heaven and earth, I wish I could do it, I, I I didn't write that down in my notes, but if I do this again, I'll write that down in my notes so I can sound more Hebrew. But we took bread and we gave thanks for it. And it was broken bread. It was distributed to us in pieces. And we took that and we sang, may I never lose the wonder, the wonder of your mercy. May I never lose the wonder of your mercy. We're not just eating bread so that we are fed. This is bringing remembrance to us. You could have been in this crowd as a Gentile. You're not Jewish. Maybe, I don't, maybe there's some people here that have a Jewish background. I know at least one does. But we're, we're not here, she's not here, and we're not here because we have a genealogical connection to this. We're here because we have a spiritual connection to the bread of life, to Jesus himself. He's the one that gives us an identity in the thanksgiving. Surely that message is one that Mark's audience longs for as they see themselves in Rome under the persecution of Nero Caesar, being the objects of scorn and wrath without any sense of justice at all. And yet he's telling them, feed upon Jesus. Feed upon the bread of life. Even in the places of hunger and thirst and suffering as they were suffering in this destitute places of life. And he took the loaves and the bread and he broke them and gave them to the disciples, distributed to the people, and they did so. They had a small, they had a few small fish as well. They, they thought they just had bread at first and they found a few small fish, so they said, well, good, bring this fish too, we'll have fish too. It's small fish. You know, the salt, small fish were the ones that you would pack in salt, like a sardine. We, of course, put those in oil now and never eat them. <clears throat> but 
but they're, they're the kind of things you can pack and take with you. And so they found some of those as good, bring those too. We'll bless those. We'll give thanks for those. And boom, they're going to be distributed. And what's the result? It says that they were fed, about 4,000 present. They were fed and satisfied. Hmm. People ate and were satisfied. Again, that same word that Mark used in the Jewish feeding of the 5,000. You see that same result here in this Gentile feeding of the 4,000. They ate and they were satisfied. Satisfied, this word that's used for satisfied here isn't just, well, that was a nice little treat, can't wait till dinner. No, they were filled. They were satisfied till they wanted to stop eating. Now, arguably, I don't know about you, but if something really tastes good to me, I will keep eating it until it's gone. But there are some places that test you, right? Some restaurants and places like that test you. They've got, got more and more of this stuff until finally you go, I can't eat another bite. You might be surprised how far that is from the beginning. That's the point they are. They're satisfied. They don't want any more. I, I can't eat that. I can't eat another bite, they say. My mother used to do it this way. Woo, woo, woo. I can't eat another bite. Now pass the, uh, no. <laughs> They're satisfied exceedingly, abundantly more than they can ask or imagine. God has a way of doing that, doesn't he? When he feeds us, it's not just feeds us a little. He feeds us and overwhelms us. I don't know about you. All I have to do is just start thinking about 1973, especially when it gets around August time, and my heart just feels like it's starting to overflow with thanksgiving in that year that I was saved. I don't know about you. May we never lose the wonder of that, of this thanksgiving for the great things that God has done for us. They, were, they ate and they were satisfied to such a point that afterwards the disciples picked up seven basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. Seven baskets full of broken pieces that were left over. And about 4,000 were present, it tells us in verse 9. After he had sent them away, he went and got into the boat with his disciples and went to the region of Dalmanutha. Dalmanutha. You say it, Dalmanutha. And we see the ending of this abrupt ending to the story, the same way we saw the abrupt ending to the feeding of the 5,000, except with the 5,000, Matthew gives a, a little bit more detail, is that the people began pressing him and overwhelming him as if they wanted to. And Jesus said that he, he, he knew it was in the hearts of people and he was afraid they were going to try to make him their king. They're going to try to fulfill their eschatological hope for the Messiah, which was that the Messiah was going to come, and when he comes, he's going to throw off whoever Satan is Satan at that time. Satan being the oppressor. And Rome was the oppressor during this time. They were not only oppressors for Jews, they're also oppressors for the Gentiles in the same region. And, and so as a result, they saw this opportunity where if he can heal people, if he can raise the dead, if he can cast out devils, if he can feed 5,000 people, if he can do all these kinds of things, he surely is the Messiah. He's the king. He can also throw off Rome and bring in the whole eschatological age. 
of God's rule. But that wasn't Jesus' plan. That wasn't the Father's plan. That wasn't the Bible's plan. That wasn't something that was and then changed. That's something that never was. It was never God's uh, desire to rule over the earth. Why? Because the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. He already rules over the earth. It's always the hearts of people that are being discussed when it comes to this issue of God's rulership. And Jesus had not come to bring some passive, or excuse me, some, some shallow ex exchange for sinful people, exchange from one ruler to another ruler, one dominant Lord to another dominant Lord. Everybody promised they were going to be Israel's Messiah. Everyone failed. Jesus came not to destroy, not to destroy the world, not to destroy kingdoms. He came to find his sheep because he already was the one who had authority over his kingdom. Are you worried about the world today? I tell you what, if you, if you can cue yourself up to have an answer to someone who, they say things like, this is the last days, man. It's got to be the last days. I just know it's the last days. Why? Because, oh, earthquakes, you know, wars and rumors of wars and all those things that Matthew 24 talks about. All these things. I just know it's the last days. As if any day now, something's going to rise up and it's just going to change the whole world and Christianity's going to cover itself up under some rock someplace and wait for Jesus to, you know, rapture us out. Is that your eschatological hope? Or do we see the earth being covered with the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the seas? Just ask yourself the question, is the world going to get better or worse? All you got to do is ask that one, answer that one question. You can see your eschatological hope. What Jesus is bringing is a hope of hearts changing, internally changing. We don't need to be afraid of radical Islam from the standpoint of it overtaking the whole world because Christ is Lord over Islam. Christ is Lord over cultish systems. Christ is Lord over sin and depravity and debauchery. He's Lord over that and He is calling people out of it every single day and changing things because people are changing how many testimonies have you heard of somebody you think, well, they can't be a Christian. Next thing you know, they're telling you that they wound up in some little church someplace or something happened to them and they heard a message they'd never heard before and their hearts were awakened and they're a born-again Christian. I know that's my testimony. Well, I would say the first part's not quite right. But God is working. Always, Jesus said. And Jesus was not allowing himself to be taken into the de desires and captivity of men. He's coming to fulfill his Father's will, not will of people. Even happy people. Even thankful people. He's coming to find his own. And so as a result, he had the same response. In the earlier one, it says he quickly dismissed the disciples. He didn't want them to hear this. You go on a boat. Go, go wait in the boat. And he dismissed the crowd, and he went and got in the boat, and this time, as soon as it's over, he goes and gets in the boat. He doesn't need people to affirm him to be Lord. 
doesn't take a large number of people. doesn't take everybody in the world. doesn't take the majority. He doesn't need those kinds of earthly, carnal things. He needs to fulfill His Father's will, and this is precisely what He's doing. Well, just some takeaways here, just as we close this morning. What, what are some of the things that we see from this text? Things that become obvious from this text. Well, number one is Jesus is bringing in the lordship or the governance of God. God's own governance. He's bringing this into the world. And one of the most important areas in Judaism for maintaining your relationship to God is what you eat. You ever see hear people say, well, I'm just going to do what the Bible says about eating. I'm just going to eat, do like the Old Testament, take all those ritual Jewish you know, uh, laws about eating, and I know that I'll get a lot healthier. Okay, great, good idea. But that's not what God's will, God's, the, God's power in the kingdom, it says, he does, it's not eating and drinking. The kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. And in this remarkable narrative, Jesus is demonstrating His Lordship over food. Of course, maybe a Gentile will eat what a Jew makes, but a Jew won't eat with a Gentile at all. There's this separation, this wall between the two, this hatred between the two. And here's this Jewish teacher with 12 Jewish guys with him, and they're giving this apparently Jewish meal to Gentiles. And not a person makes a peep. He is showing his dominance, his lordship over food and over ritual. We hear the phrase often that the United States is founded on Judeo-Christian ethics, principles. Almost and as if you know, Judaism and Christianity merge to form the place where the United States was founded. And it's true, and I, I, I believe that there is some great truth to that phrase in, in as much as, yes, the rule of law comes from the Old Testament. Thou shalt and thou shalt not is the Jewish law. Certainly, Judaism provided this foundation or, or, or supported and maintained this foundation of the rule of law. And so the rule of law comes forward from Judaism. Christianity, of course, adopted that and then perfected it and expanded it. And so we see that, that characteristic of the rule of law. It's not food. It's not what you should eat. We weren't founded on the same diets. We weren't founded on the same place to worship. We weren't founded on all that stuff. We were founded on some, some things that Judaism and Christianity have in common. But ultimately, our origins, where you and I come from, and all people who are in Christ come from is Christ. Okay? We don't come because of Judeo foundations. Jesus didn't come preaching Judeo foundations. He came preaching grace, God's mercy, God's calling, God's plans, from as if nothing had existed before. He's calling us into that. Of course, there's the Mosaic law, you know, the, the ethical law, the code of Israel. He's certainly in tune with that, but he is going above it. 
You've heard say in the old times that thou shalt not kill. But I say to you, he says. And he gives us a new explanation. And here he's coming into a place, especially when you think of into a Gentile context. By the way, we're all Gentiles. We could have been sitting in this crowd that day, every one of us. We can have more identity with this pericope than we can with the one before. We are of Christ. We're, We're of Christ. We read it this morning. This passage in Ephesians. You going to turn there? I did, forgot to ask you if you have your Bibles with you, right? I got my Bible and no sermon. You could hear the sermon with no Bible. No. I hope that's not true. Galatians, Ephesians. Chapter 2. Verse 11. Remember, therefore... That formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision. Jewish people call Gentile people uncircumcised, which is done in the body by human hands. Remember, at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise without hope, without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one. Doesn't make the two groups Jewish. Doesn't make the two groups Gentiles. He makes the Jew and the Gentile come into another group and he explains what that group is. The two groups are Excuse me, the two groups are brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barriers, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commandments and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross." by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near, to the Jew who were near and to the Gentiles who were far away. For through him we both have access to the Father by one Spirit, by his work of regeneration within us. He demonstrates his lordship over his people. Finally, He demonstrates his compassion to the whole world and his determination to all his sheep. God loves everyone. It's true. God loves everyone. Don't ever get the idea that God loves only just certain people. God loves everyone. Why? Why does God love everyone? Because God is love. His very nature is to love. So when you say God loves everybody, you say, well, no, he doesn't love those people unless you're the elect. No, he loves everyone. But he has a determination also when it comes to redemption. And he calls all of those that the Father has given him, the Bible says. All of them, each and every one of them. 
There's nobody that's supposed to be a Christian that's not a Christian. There's nobody that's a Christian that shouldn't really be here. All his sheep have been gathered to him. Whether they're from male or female, slave, free, Jew, Gentile. We are all one in Christ. As it says here in Ephesians, He has called us by His cross and He has brought us into His kingdom rulership through that process. What a powerful, powerful word of God we have. May it breathe upon us afresh. And may we never lose the wonder, the wonder of His mercy. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. We praise you and glorify you today. In Christ's name, amen.